0: Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB, I'm Dave Miller. The writer Ann Patchett is our guest for the hour today. She's published two children's books, five books of nonfiction, and nine novels. In addition to being a book writer, she is a bookseller. Patchett co-founded Parnassus Books in her hometown of Nashville in 2011. She was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters six years later. Patchett has published two pandemic books in the last two years. These Precious Days came first. It is a death-infused and simultaneously joy-filled collection of essays. Now she has given us the novel Tom Lake. Its present-day action takes place over the course of a few days early on in the pandemic when three young adult daughters are helping with the cherry harvest on their family's orchard in northern Michigan. As they pick the cherries, their mother tells them a story from her past that they have imagined but never fully heard her doomed romance with a movie star before he became famous. It is a warm, wise, beautiful novel, and I'm thrilled to have Ann Patchett with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So this new novel, it opens at the casting of a community production of Thornton Wilder's play, Our Town. And it ends with your note, an author's note, where you say, if this novel has a goal... It's to turn the reader back to Our Town and to all of Wilder's work. Therein lies the joy. For people who haven't seen or read the play, what is Our Town?
1: Our Town is probably my favorite piece of American literature. I mean, certainly the one that I have gone back to the most in the course of my life. It is a deceptively simple three-act play. Takes starts in 1900 in the mythical New Hampshire town of Grover's Corners. In the first act, there are two neighbors. The towns explained the boy is George, the girl is Emily, they're friends, they like each other. In the second act, they fall in love and get married, and in the third act... And I'm going to go ahead and say this because the play was published in the 30s and, you know, it's time for you to catch up. (laughs) Emily dies in childbirth, young. And when she's at the cemetery, the stage manager, who is the the central figure in the play, takes her back to an unimportant day in her life so she can see how beautiful life was. Um, And it really is a play about paying attention to your life and realizing that life is just made up of little moments and little connections. And uh, it's a very beautiful, resonant piece of literature.
0: You write in that author's note that the play has been for you a comfort, a guide, and an inspiration throughout your life. Those are related, but different things. How has it been a comfort?
1: I think it's primarily been a comfort because it just continually wax me back into line. I just reach for it without even thinking. I've got it by my desk. And when I think, oh, there's something else I want. I want a different kind of life. I want a different outcome. I want to to do these things I haven't done before. And I look at our town and I just think, no, this is it. This is today. This is this beautiful, beautiful life that I have. And the trick is just whether or not I can be aware of it. And I find that very comforting. It's it's like the play is saying to me, wake up, look around. Hmm. It, it's kind of a Buddhist text, really, at this point in my life. I, I certainly didn't feel that way when I was young, but now it serves that purpose for me.
0: Why do you think that that message that you mentioned, to, to stay engaged, to pay attention, to, to notice the, the people and the things around us, Why is that? I mean, and we've all heard that in various ways. Why is it so hard to do?
1: I think that life is a giant distraction. And it can be a distraction in so many ways. It can be the things that you are accumulating, the things that you are wishing to have. If you owned whatever it is you wanted, then then you would be happy, you would no longer suffer, you would have the thing that you wanted. Um, so, that's part of the giant distraction of life. Part of the giant distraction of life is this present moment, which is full of media and social media that is constantly clamoring for our attention and keeps us from seeing ourselves. And the people we love and the world around us. I mean, it's just like a, every day you are provided with a million different opportunities to fail, mm. uh, in order to see your own life and and what it actually means.
0: You know, when you were talking about its the, the ways it's provided solace or or guidance, it, it seems to me that a lot of that has to do with. With you as just a human being living your life, um, what about the way it's affected your work, your writing?
1: Our Town is written in a beautifully simple and straightforward way, and that has very much affected my writing. I, um, For myself, there's plenty of literature out there that I adore. That is not beautiful. That is not straightforward, and is not simple. For example, I am a great lover of Henry James. Um, I'm a great lover of Louise Erdrich. Uh, you know, I, there are all sorts of uh, Colson Whitehead, a deeply complicated Margaret Atwood. I keep thinking them, them a wonderful writers. You should sell books. Oh, I should, and I do. <laughs> writers who are at the very top of my list, and yet. What our town reminds me is what I want to do as a writer, not what I think other people should do, is I want to get my point across as clearly and succinctly as possible. If I can say something in 10 sentences instead of 10 pages, I want to. If I can say it in 10 words rather than 10 sentences, I want to. I do not wish to send anyone to the dictionary. I, I want people to have the experience of reading something that's very intentional and clear and straightforward. And that comes from our town.
0: When you first talked about his, this play, you said it was deceptively simple. What's deceptive about it?
1: Well, it seems very simple to say you should just be aware of your life. And yet it is the thing that is the most impossible thing to do. So yes, I think it is deceptively simple. I mean, go and sit in the field and look at clouds and you'll really feel so much better. But why is it so hard to actually pull that off and to make a place for that in our day? Deceptively simple.
0: If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Anne Patchett. Her new novel is called Tom Lake. She'll be at Portland's Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall on Thursday, September 7th in conversation with Cheryl Strayed. I wonder if you could read us uh, just a part of a paragraph from the novel. This is one that I I don't think it really needs much setting up.
1: Um, I don't think it does either. There is no explaining the simple truth about life you will forget much of it. The painful things you were certain you'd never be able to let go, now you're not entirely sure when they happened, while the thrilling parts, the heart-stopping joys, splintered and scattered and became something else. Memories are then replaced by different joys and larger sorrows, and unbelievably, those things get knocked aside as well, Until one morning, you're picking cherries with your three grown daughters, and your husband goes by on the gator, and you are positive that this is all you've ever wanted in the world.
0: If part of the Our Town message is, you know, pay attention as you go, and then this later-in-life wisdom through your narrator is, you know, you're going to forget so much, where does that leave us (laughs) Somewhere in the middle.
1: I know when I was writing that paragraph, I was thinking about myself in my 20s and falling in love and then having the love, you know, fall apart and the sobbing, the just, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't live without him. And I'm 59 and I think, God, if I ran into those people now, would I even know, them? Hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, both things are so true. You feel, you feel these emotions so passionately. I mean, not just the loss of the love, but the love itself. And you look back later and you think, huh, that's so interesting. I love that person. I don't, I don't know them anymore. I don't really remember them. I lost that person. Huh? Yeah, I didn't think I'd live through it. I I did. I don't ever think about it anymore.
0: Hmm. Do you think you could have written anything close to this novel when you were in your 20s?
1: Um probably not. I think that I think that this really is a novel of lived experience. This is this book is about a lot of different things, but one of the things it's about is the difference between that, the love of our 20s that makes you feel like you set yourself on fire and then jumped off a roof, and the love of later in life, my, my husband and I will have been together for 30 years this year, and it, those two experiences are not comparable uh, and it, it's so hard if somebody in my 20s had said to me, someday you will have been with the same person for 30 years and you'll spend the whole weekend sitting in the den together reading novels and you just will be happier than than anything else. There's like nothing else that you would want. That would have made no sense to me.
0: Hmm. How would you explain it to that 20-year-old? Or Or are you saying that it's it's actually unbridgeable. You just have to wait a couple of decades until that version of happiness is actually real happiness.
1: I think that this book is Laura trying to explain that to her three daughters. She's she's trying to explain that the crazy white hot love of her twenties isn't something that she wants now because the guy went on to become a super famous movie star the girls who adore their father are like but yeah don't you want to be married to him didn't you really wouldn't it have been better if you had been married to this incredibly hot famous guy and laura keeps saying no you know you that's that's not what you want for your life and the experience of her married life is shown. She doesn't sit down and say, listen, take a good look at your dad. Take a good look at what we're doing and what we have. But the reader sees what they're doing and what they have. And the reader gets to see that love. And so do the girls. Hmm.
0: One of the themes in this novel is that there are often huge gaps in our knowledge of the people around us, friends, and and certainly family as well, the, the three daughters of... Um, your um, a narrator, they have all kinds of ideas about what that love affair, what, what that relationship that their mom had when she was their age, when she was in her early 20s, what it was like. And they're very wrong. Yeah. It seems like a really useful tool as a novelist to have those <laughs> kinds of gaps because there's drama in those gaps and that imbalance. How much does it happen in life?
1: Oh, I think it happens in life all the time. My father is dead. My mother is fine and three blocks away from where I live. I was very, very close to both of my parents. And yet, not only did I really not understand their lives and still don't, before I was born, but I think in some essential way, I don't even believe in their lives. Before I was born, <laughs> like, their story starts with my story, and as much as I think, oh well, that's not true. I'm so evolved. I, I I really think of them as people, and I know they did things before me. But but I'm not I'm not completely sure I'm telling myself the truth. I wrote a piece. Years ago, I I had started this project as a book, and then it just turned into a very, very long essay uh, about my father, who was a police officer in Los Angeles. And when I was working on it, I was interviewing him a lot and just asking him questions about his life and his work in the police force. And it was shocking to me how much I didn't know and how many things I got wrong, but just how many things I had never thought about before. And even though that happened a long time ago, it really fed into this novel. My ignorance of his life fed into this novel.
0: You know, there and there's a there is a specific w- version of this when it comes to our parents. And and in some ways, that complicates things just because of the, the parental relationship. But I was reminded of your beautiful essay, These Precious Days, the, the title essay of the, your second most recent book, where you write that even after living intimately with your friend Suki for a few months, you realized how little you knew about her. I mean, it took a while for you to even realize that that she had a husband and it wasn't like she was keeping <laughs> that a secret it's just you made your assumptions and she never talked about it. Yes. What yeah. gets in the way do you think of deeper knowledge of the people around us? I mean why are we so often in the dark?
1: Well, and with Suki that's a, a particularly interesting question because Suki was a very private person. And she had worked for a long time, more than 20 years, as Tom Hanks's personal assistant. And I remember saying to her once, we were out walking, and I said, were you like this, therefore you got a job as a movie star's personal assistant? Or did working as a movie star's personal assistant make you this person where you just never talk about yourself? And she looked at me and she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but the wonderful thing that Sookie taught me, or one of the many wonderful things she taught me, was that people are not their histories uh, or or their facts. That's one way of knowing people. But there was a whole other way of knowing her, which is we just live together. And we cooked dinner together every night and we exercised and we meditated together and we took walks together and we talked about the trees and the birds and what we were reading and what I was writing and what she was painting. We had this perfectly present tense relationship and we knew each other very well without my saying, so, you know, Tell me how you feel about when you first got married, or tell me about your children and their lives, and you know what I mean. It was just—I totally
0: do, but but I—but I—I wonder if it's interesting because I'm thinking about you both as just a person again, and as a novelist, and—and I wonder if it would be challenging for you to, with that level of understanding of somebody, to actually turn them into a character.
1: Well, if you're talking about writing an essay about her, as opposed to... I, When you say turn her into a character, that feels like a more of a fictional thing. Yes. Um, and I didn't... So in that sense, I didn't turn her into a character. But there was a point with Suki, and that experience. So, So she came to live with us during the pandemic. She had recurrent pancreatic cancer. She needed to get into a clinical trial really fast. And my husband, who's a doctor, got her into a trial here in Nashville. The trial was going to start up very soon thereafter in Los Angeles. She was going to go home, but then COVID happened and she was trapped essentially with us, Um, both because she couldn't travel and because the trial in LA that hadn't started was canceled. And at some point, I knew I was going to have to write about this and i just couldn't figure out how to how to broach the subject with her because again she was such a private person but this phenomenal thing was happening in my house my husband was home from work i had canceled all my trips this stranger who's dying of recurrent pancreatic cancer is living with us and painting around the clock because she wants to make as much art as she can before she dies And I thought of something that my friend Elizabeth Gilbert told me, which was years ago, she shared an essay with me that she had written. And it was the most incredible essay I had ever read. It was, it just rocked me. It was so beautiful and so important. And I said, where are you going to publish this? And she said, I'm not. It was about her neighborhood. And I said, you have to, this is unbelievable. And she said, nope, nope, I wrote it for myself. I cannot publish this because all my neighbors are in it. I can't do it. This is very private. She said, the only person I'm going to show this to is you. And I just went crazy. I was like, make it fiction, change their names, set it in Puerto Rico, do whatever you have to do. You've got to publish this. And she said, no, I just have to write this. I just needed to write this and I wanted you to read it. And because of that, I was able to go to Sookie all these years later and say, listen, I'm going to write about this, and it's going to be for you and for me, and that's it. And if you read it and you want somebody else to read it, if it's okay, we'll take it from there. But right now, I'm just going to write this for the two of us. And I interviewed her, and... I worked on it, and I bet she read that essay 50 times. And finally, she had her friends read it and her family read it, and they all said, yeah, this is you, this is you. This is exactly who you are. And then she said, yes, you can publish it. And so I did.
0: Hmm. You mentioned Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, it's kismet. Eight years ago, we had her on to talk about her book, Big Magic, which was all about her creative process. And at one point, she told a story about you, which we went back and grabbed because um, I thought oh. it would be interesting to to listen to. This is about two minutes from that uh, 2015 conversation. Um, this is about your novel, State of Wonder. Um, so right before the part that we're about to hear, she mentioned that she had spent months working on a novel about a woman who goes to the Amazon. And then she put it aside for a while because... Uh, the spirit, really, she felt, was was no longer in the the book she was trying to write. Let's have a listen to what she says after that.
2: I met the novelist Anne Patchett. We had this very electrifying encounter. Um, we were big fans of each other, and we kind of you know, fell into each other's arms, had this big kiss and said, I love your work. I love your work. I love you. I love you. Um, a very short meeting. We became pen pals. And um, she dropped into a letter a couple months later. She was working on a novel about the Amazon jungle um, that she had just started on it. And when we met in person a year after that, I had told her that I would had my own Amazon jungle novel, but it was dead to me and gone. And we sat over breakfast one morning and she said, um, I said, tell me about your book. And she said, no, tell me about yours. So I went through what it had been about, and I said, why? Tell me about yours. (laughs) And she said, oh, well, mine's about a uh, sad, lonely, middle-aged spinster from Minnesota who's been quietly, desperately in love with her married boss for many years who gets involved in an outrageous money-making scheme down in the Amazon jungle and a person and a bunch of money go missing, and he sends her down to take care of it, at which point her whole life is turned over into drama and chaos. In other words, it was exactly the same story. And when we- Cross your heart. Counted- Cross my cross my heart and, and li- okay. believe me, Anne Patchett, unlike me, is actually like a, a reasonable <laughs> human being. <laughs> so I think it shocked her more than it shocked me because I live for the expectation of this kind of stuff. Right? Like <laughs> to me, this is like, of course, that's how the universe works, right? Um, and we, you know, counted back on our fingers to try to figure out when I had lost the idea and when she had found it, and it was. It was around the time we met. So in our magical thinking version of the story, we like to say that the idea was exchanged in the kiss, um, that it left me and went to her. I like to think that it's because that novel got bored of waiting for me to give my attention to it. And it found a novelist who was ready ready to work and just said, "Um, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go to um, Miss Patchett down here in Nashville because it looks like she's actually going to get the job done.
0: (laughs) Ann Patchett, what's your version of that story?
1: It's very similar. (laughs) And that is a story that I used to tell on stage when I would go and and give talks. And when Liz wrote Big Magic, and she came to me and she said, you know, this story, I'm I'm putting it in my book, and I want you to read these pages and tell me if this is the way you remember it. And I'm like, oh, honey, I tell that story (laughs) twice a week. Um, (laughs) And it really was that and I like to joke that basically I am a Great Ideas second choice <laughs> after the Great has hung out with Liz Gilbert for a while and not gotten anywhere then it shrugs and says okay well who's next on the list I guess I'll give it a shot
0: <laughs> Has anything like that ever happened to you before or since?
1: Um, It's happened to me since. I mean, has it happened to me before? Well, maybe, but I just wasn't aware of it. But several years later, I had a dream that was a novel. It was just absolutely a novel in full. And Liz was visiting. And I I mean, I had maybe maybe five days I walked around thinking, I am the luckiest novelist in the world. I just woke up and I have a completely formed novel in my head. And this is exactly what I want to do. And then Liz was in town, which Liz is not in town very often. I mean, we only see each other once every couple of years. And we were taking a walk and her partner, Rhea, had just died And she was saying, you know, I'm just struggling to try to come up with where I'm supposed to put this. And I have this idea. It's very vague. And I said, oh, wait, no, 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 I got it. I got it. And I told her the whole thing. And she said, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. That's the book I'm supposed to be writing. And she said, but how could you give it up? And I said, Liz, I've only had it five days. It's not like I married it or anything. I mean, huh. and, and it, it came to nothing for both of us. It, it probably went on to Zadie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it really was a moment where I said, oh, I dreamed your dream. That's all. It just, it just showed up at the wrong house.
0: We've got to take a short break, but we have a lot more coming up with Anne Patchett. Stay tuned. From the Gerd Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If we're just tuning in, we're talking today with the celebrated writer Anne Patchett. She's the author of the novels Bel Canto, State of Wonder, and Commonwealth, among many others. Her latest is called Tom Lake. She'll be at Portland's Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall next Thursday evening. Your narrator is a kind of reluctant storyteller. She is cajoled into telling her daughters about her life as a young adult, and it's for her daughters. What do you think she gets out of telling her story?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think she gets the, the radiant gaze of these three young women who she loves so much. They're paying attention to her, and and they want her. And and I think that's pretty irresistible. She loves those girls, and they're terrific. And she knows that she's pleasing them by telling them the story. And I think that's what the exchange is.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's possible that the, the larger version of that question, the, the universal one, is, is what do we get when our stories are reflected back to us?
1: Well, I think that Laura does a lot of uh unintentional reflecting on her past, both her love affair but also her short-lived career as an actress. Did she which she gave up at the end of that summer at Tom Lake. Tom Lake is the name of the mythical Summerstock Theater where she falls in love with Peter Duke where they are yet again playing in our town. And She's asking herself, did I really want that life? Because her girls keep saying, you must have wanted to be an actress. Everybody wants to be an actress. Everybody was in love with Peter Duke. How could you not want that life? How could you want a life on a cherry orchard? How could you just be happy being married to dad? But she's really thinking about those things. And whenever she looks at that part of her life, what she finds out is, in fact, She doesn't miss that past at all. And this is truly the life she wants.
0: What was it like for you to focus as a writer on what I I assume is the oldest version of storytelling we have, the the oral tradition? I mean, obviously, your novel is written, but the conceit of it is that your main character, the narrator, is basically – talking she is telling this story to her daughters and and we get the written down version of it
1: yes and and that was that was really great so the challenge in this book is there are two plot lines. Uh, there's the story of 1988 when Laura is 24 and then there is the story of 2020 when Laura is 57 and when you have two plot lines as a novelist, or as a reader, the problem is often that you're more interested in one than the other. And so you read one more quickly and you read one more slowly. And what I was trying to do is keep the reader's attention even. And I did that by having the daughters constantly interrupt the mother. So while Laura's talking about the past, the present is always interjecting into her life, which anytime you talk about the past or think about the past, you're doing it through the lens of the present. It's impossible not to. This is where we are. This is the point from which, you know, this is the rock that we're standing on looking back over the ocean or whatever. Um, and so, to combine those two plot lines and, and braid them was what I was really trying to do but it was a, it was a lot of fun and I remember while I was writing this book the part it tom lake is in the past tense and the part in the cherry orchard is in the present tense and um I don't I'm not a huge fan of the present tense it's it's it, shall we say extremely uninformed but it was the thing that worked and I got a piece of f- fan mail While I was writing this book, and the guy said to me, "You know, I I read all your books, and what I really like about them is you never put anything in the in the present tense." And he said, (laughs) "Nothing should be in the present tense unless it's a play." And I wrote him back, and I said, "Well, I've got some good news and some bad news. Um, I am writing a book, half of which is in the present tense, but it is." about a play and it essentially acts as a play. And that was a very helpful way for me to think about it, that the present was our town in a sense. The present was the play Hmm. and the present is telling the story of the past.
0: How often do you write back to people who write to you?
1: I write back 100% of the time, unless the person's, I want to say crazy, but I'm I'm sure we're not supposed to say that anymore. Uh, unless, unless it's just somebody who's very angry at me uh, or going after me. I was over at the bookstore this morning. All the mail comes in through the bookstore. And the people at the bookstore, and I have never asked them to do this, but they open all my mail with great glee and read it before I get it. You never
0: ask them and and you don't mind that they they do that?
1: No, I don't. And here's why. They take out all the letters that would be disturbing to me. Um, And if it's someone who seems dangerous, they put that letter in a file. And I always say, so, you know, when I go missing, and they're like, yeah, yeah that we we save it for that so what i get is i just get the cream i just get people saying thank you so much i loved your books this is so wonderful thank you and i do write all those people back
0: hmm. the love of the orchard lands in northern michigan looms really large over this yes. novel i mean yes. and i i don't want to get into um, some potential spoilers, but even a character or two who spend an afternoon mm. in this land, sort of half fictional, half real land, they're enchanted by it and and it changes the course of their lives in various ways. When did you first go to Northern Michigan?
1: I'm so glad you asked this question. um because the present tense story is set in Traverse City, and it's it's as real as real could be. And I first went to Petoskey, Michigan in 2001 when I was on book tour for Belcanto. And I became great friends with the Norcross family that owned the store, McLean and Eakin, my favorite bookstore in the country. And I started to go back. My husband and I would go back on vacation. I then later made very good friends with a young couple in Traverse City, Michigan, ben and aaron whiting which is funny because ben happens to be in my house right now and um but isn't aaron, somebody
0: always in your house I've somebody I've learned is that from always in my house right
1: that's <laughs> okay. not me
0: it just happens um, to be someone named ben who is ben, that ben. but
1: but aaron grew up on a cherry farm and later opened a professional theater company so she was my source for everything hmm. and when i was working on this book i said you know this is the kind of farm i I want this to be set on, she said, Oh, I know exactly the farm you want to see. So I went up to see them. And she took me to Barb Wunsch's farm in Traverse City, it's a cherry farm, apples, they have some pears and peaches, mostly cherries and apples. And it was an amazing experience and everything on that farm is Barb Wunsch's farm. Everything I know about orchards comes from that farm. and maybe two weeks ago, a week ago, who knows, it's book tour. I was back in Traverse City to do an event. And Ben and Aaron and I went back to Barb's farm, and she had a barbecue for me. And to go back to that farm that I had seen before, but I had then spent all this time living there in my head, Hmm. and to walk down those roads and to go through those woods and down to the beach to sit at her kitchen table, every single thing is true. And it is the most beautiful, heart-opening place I I know, and i feel like the michigan board of tourism should start sending me checks because everybody is writing to me now and saying what i really want to do is get a farm a cherry farm in northern michigan they should and read the, think, the whole yeah, book
0: I, I mean it's it's well, beautiful but it's hard work
1: well sure it it absolutely is hard work and i i spent some years of my childhood on a fake farm in rural Tennessee outside of Nashville. And uh by which I mean we lived on a farm and we were not farmers. We had we had pigs and horses and chickens and that sort of thing. But we were surrounded by real farms. And and I think I always have known that farm work is it's not only hard work, but it's it's all year round hard work. Um but it's it's also very regular and beautiful and you don't get away from it. I mean, there's a reason that people have fifth and sixth generation farms, because that's in you and you're not going to let it go.
0: I'm talking today with the writer Ann Patchett. Her latest novel is called Tom Lake. You've written that you need to know the overall shape of your novels before you can actually write them. You need to have your destination before you start the journey. I'm curious what the surprises can be along the way, because it's not like, you know, everything about it. you just, unlike some writers who say, you know, um, I'll, it'll unfold as we go. And that's my process. You know, where you're going. So what are the potential detours that you don't see coming?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, and what's interesting to me about it is I feel like people need to believe that authors aren't in control and that they are surprised by their own work and, and thrown off by it. The way I work, which is not the right way, it's just the way I do it, I will think about a story for a year or two or three or whatever before I start to write it. So there are uh, endless surprises. I change my mind constantly. I throw things away and pick other things up, but I'm not writing it down. It's all in my head. When I sit down to write a book, I have a pretty good idea about how it's all going to go. Now, do I know what they're gonna say to one another in a given scene? or exactly what one scene then takes you into the next scene, no. But I think about Edward P. Jones and the known world, uh, and from what I understand, all of his work. He works in his head, and he can just recite it to you before he starts to write it. That's, That's how well he knows what he is eventually going to write down on a piece of paper. So I'm not there, but um, it's it really isn't about being surprised. It's about paying very close attention to what I'm doing.
0: In one of the essays in your last collection, an essay about throwing physical stuff out, mm-hmm. as, as part of a preparation for death, this was a pandemic activity that I think a lot of people did. Um, you include a note about craft. You say, writing must be separate from editing. And if you try to do both at once, nothing will get done. It, is that hard to actually follow, to not critique in some way, to not let your your editing brain take the reins for a second?
1: Well, certainly when I finish a chapter... I edit it. I go back and I and I polish it. I change things around. I rewrite things. I look for better words. I looked for how I could be more concise. I don't go to chapter three until I feel like chapter two is completely done, which, again, is not the way most people work. I, I do all of my drafts as I go along. Um, but it is also true that Everything seems horrible at first. And so if I write, my impulse is to just delete. You know, if I write five pages, I think, oh, that's junk. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to use that. But I've been doing this long enough to know that I have to suspend judgment because I am not fit to make that call. I just have to write I just have to keep writing until I get a little bit farther along, and then I can look and shape. But if I try to edit and write the same time, what I wind up with is absolutely nothing.
0: I've read that this is the first novel that you have written while walking, literally. You have one of those treadmill desks. Are you able to actually feel or see the ways in which that activity, that that physicality, affected the writing?
1: Absolutely. It was the craziest thing. So I've had this treadmill desk for nine years, and I got it for my 50th birthday. And um, I had only always used it for emails and for long phone calls. And maybe, like, if I was writing an essay, I would revise it on the treadmill, For whatever reason, when I started this novel, I just thought, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm just going to see how this goes if I try to write on the treadmill desk. And I ended up writing the whole book while I was walking. And it made a huge difference. For one thing, it made me really happy uh, just from an exercise endorphin. And it's not really exercise. I was going 1.5 miles an hour. But The movement, the engagement made me happy. And I think that happiness really comes into the book. Um, But there were all sorts of really interesting byproducts. For example, when I am writing and I get stuck on something, if it's a sentence or an idea, or I don't really know what I'm supposed to do next, I can get unbelievably sleepy like that kind of sleepy that you get in church when you're a kid. It just or or a bad lecture. You, there's no way you can stay awake. And I will put my head down on my desk for two minutes. That doesn't happen when you're walking. <laughs> so and I wasn't distracted. I don't understand this, but it's like the part of my brain that is saying left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, is the same part of my brain that is normally when I'm sitting at my regular desk going, oh, you've got to get up and flip the laundry. What are you going to make for dinner? You've got to call your agent back. You know, you've got to go check in with your mother. Did you remember to send Susan a birthday card? Because that ticker tape is always going in my brain. And when I was walking, I didn't have that
0: It seems like magic. You've you've, you've arrived at the answer.
1: uh, It was incredible magic. Also, at this point in my life, I have trouble, and really for a lot of my life, you write a novel and you get, as we say, stoved up. So, My right shoulder by the end of the book is reaching up towards my right ear. My wrists hurt, my hands hurt, my back hurts. None of that was true on the treadmill because on the treadmill, you are forced into perfect alignment. So at the end of the day, my feet would hurt, uh, but my neck didn't hurt, my arms didn't hurt. I actually saw somebody who, a a doctor who said, oh, you have to have carpal tunnel surgery. And I thought, no, I'm going to just try a treadmill. (laughs) And my problem was misalignment. So... Yeah, I could become the spokesperson for cherry farms and treadmill.
0: <laughs> I was about to say that. I-, I wonder if you could read us one more passage from the book. This comes near the end when the narrator's daughters are once again uh, going back into the orchard to to pick the cherries. Um, I think that's maybe all of the setup that we need.
1: Oh. Yeah, it's the end of a rainstorm and um, this is two of the three daughters are there. Maisie and Nell get their hats, their bug spray, and go into the great dripping world wearing muck boots. I I stay behind to make lunch, which I should have been working on while I was talking all this time. The past need not be so all-encompassing that it renders us incapable of making egg salad. The past, were I to type it up, would look like a disaster. But regardless of how it ended, We all had many good days. In that sense, the past is much like the present because the present, this unparalleled disaster, is the happiest time of my life. Joe and I here on this farm, our three girls grown and gone and then returned, all of us working together to take the cherries off the trees, Ask that girl who left Tom Lake what she wanted out of life, and she never in a million years would have said the Nelson farm in Traverse City, Michigan. But as it turned out, it was all she wanted. Once I finished with the sandwiches and put the bags of cookies and chips in a backpack, I walk out past the kitchen garden. The lettuce and tomato plants and zinnias are already straightening up from the beating they've taken. Those tiny periwinkle butterflies are working their rounds. Where do the periwinkles go in a rain like that? It's not that I'm unaware of the suffering and the soon to be more suffering in the world. It's that I know suffering exists beside wet grass and a bright blue sky recently scrubbed by rain. The beauty and the suffering are equally true. Our town taught me that. Can I say something about that, please um if you would like to hear that in a better version, Meryl Streep reads the audiobook, and it is so beautiful it will just bring you to
0: your knees. I'm not even sure I could handle that right now, but um <laughs> But I, I saw that, and I, and I, my breath was taken um, in advance of listening when I saw that uh, it's Meryl Streep doing this one. Tom Hanks did a, a recent book, and now you get Meryl Streep. Yeah. Y- your narrator there says that the early days of the pandemic, this unparalleled disaster, are the happiest times of her life. It reminded yeah. me of something you wrote in your last book that this international catastrophe was in many ways a respite for you, a time without travel and book tours and external obligations. How do you reckon with this, being on the, the winning end of cosmic luck?
1: I am grateful and not ashamed. I appreciate it, and I try to take what I am given and turn it back out to other people as best I can. And I will say there were so many people and we all whispered it who said my kids are home my my husband's home i i get to see my neighbors i i mean look at this beautiful life we were so aware in the horror of everything that was going on this is life this is life this is so precious
0: we just have about a minute left but in the vein of our town and paying attention to the, the small daily joys what's what's giving you joy right now
1: well, it's been really nice talking to you and i'm i'm not even joking i mean this has been a really great interview and i'm very very grateful for that i am on book tour and I have been going out on book tour since I was 27 years old, and I have always hated book tour. It's exhausting and overwhelming. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if on this book tour, I decided that I liked it? <laughs> a I mental trick. That
0: is, is that working?
1: It is working. Huh. If I decide instead of when people say, oh, my gosh, you're on book tour. you having such a great time. Instead of saying no, I say Yes because I am, and people are so kind. People are so kind, and I am so grateful.
0: And Patchett, it was a true pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of tour.
1: Thank you. I'm going to.
0: Okay. <laughs> Anne Patchett, her latest novel is called Tom Lake. Tomorrow on the show, people in Multnomah and Clackamas counties who are addicted to fentanyl will soon have a new place to go for inpatient treatment. It's a 16-bed center opening in East Portland on September 1st. It'll be the first alcohol and drug withdrawal management facility in the state that was paid for with funding from Measure 110. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, The Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.